This is Science Moab, the show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the iconic aspen tree. It's a good show. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Paul Rogers. I'm the director of the Western Aspen Alliance. I'm in the Department of Environment Society at Utah State University, and also I'm an associate at the Ecology Center, also at Utah State University. We begin today's discussion with Paul talking about the fact that aspen trees exist as clones, that is, single organisms with many branches or trees. As you're driving uh, through the countryside and, and in the mountains, you might see different colors of fall foliage all on aspen. So the timing of the leaf on and leaf off in spring and fall, and then the coloring of the leaves is a good indicator of where different clones stop and start. The whole clone will pretty much change color in the fall at the same time. And in the spring, the leaves will come on and off and there'll be slightly different colors and sizes as that that process goes through, but you can sort of see different clones across the hillside. And you can see some of those clones may be a small cluster of trees and some may be huge, like the Pando Aspen clone in Southern Utah, which is about 106 acres or 47,000 stems of one living organism. That is the sort of the, the amateurish way, which I use often to roughly tell what different where different clones start and stop. So aspen as a keystone species supports a lot of other species, but individual stems are operating as part of a larger unit. And so we blur the lines between how a community is functioning, a community of one species versus the interconnected community of all these species dependent on the health and well-being of that larger family or clone or however you want to describe that. And the really cool thing is a lot of those connections, those linkages are hidden to us. They may be chemical, they may be physical, but hidden underground. So there's a lot going on there controlling a whole community, but it's not exactly clear to us. Let's say if we looked at a conifer tree, it is fairly clear where the individual is. Or if we looked at a mountain lion, that's one individual. But when we walk into these forests, we're dealing with a, a highly connected community and the, the forest itself, the individual trees, are really sort of branches. And so there's a lot of cool connections there that are hidden to us. And quite frankly, the science of it, we're still learning a lot about how those connections uphold the whole forest and then actually the whole ecosystem, all those dependent species. What are some of the advantages and or disadvantages to having these stands of trees connected to one another by their roots? I, I use a lot of anthropomorphic terms, and maybe they're not always appropriate, but it's sort of socialistic in a positive sense in that if one is, has an insect or disease attack, that they could get nutrients and resources, water transfer through the root system from a healthier nearby tree. That's really simplifying the system. And so you could be supporting the system in that way. And then where the real action is in aspen forest is the the babies, the reproduction. And so that hidden root system, when the clone is injured, or say there's a forest fire and a lot of trees are, are burned or killed, the system, the big advantage of it is it comes alive and, and sends up a lot of babies, which are genetically identical to the parents. And they're all coming off of the same root system. So there's a lot of sort of push and pull going on underground, what I call the real engine of the system where where carbohydrates are stored 
and they're just waiting for small perturbations, for example, individual trees dying or injured, or large catastrophic die-off in the forest from various means. And the most obvious one we think of is fires, but that could happen through insects and disease that come through a whole clone. All of this action underground and all this storage in the bank of fuel is waiting for those things to happen, but it's all pretty fluid, you might say. Does that happen more often than the other option where one stem gets diseased and the whole clone kind of gets diseased? Do you see that very often or is is there enough nutrients in the root system to kind of combat? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's, and it's, it gets pretty messy and there's a lot we don't understand about that, but in general, Many traits of an aspen um, of an aspen stem are tied genetically to the whole clone. For example, the defense against herbivores or against diseases will be identical in the chemicals that they have to fight off those things. And so, if a particular clone may be highly susceptible, in your example, to some pathogen, some kind of disease, and the whole clone may get it, it doesn't tend to kill it off, and it's a slow process. However, when it's strained, it sends that hormonal signal that says, look, I'm not doing well, and I might not make it as a stem. Uh, Again, more anthropomorphizing here. However, I'm going to reproduce. My whole strategy is rather than live really long, I I I live a relatively short life compared to other tree species. However, I reproduce really well. And I'm much faster than something that reproduces from a seed. Because I don't have to wait for germination. Everything's there and it's ready to go. And we could have juveniles that are a half a meter or a meter tall within a couple months of a forest fire. And and you just don't get that with seed germination. Um, And so so you're right. A whole clone could be more susceptible to, to a certain pathogen. But it has its initial defense, protect me. And then its secondary response is, oh yeah, I'm going to make a lot of offspring and make sure we live, the, the clone lives on for a long time. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening in the West today and, you know, more specifically, say, on the Colorado Plateau, where we're experiencing more and more drought and more tendency towards fire. From what little I know of Aspen, they kind of seem to be a fire resilient in the fact that if stuff's burned off the surface, they they can sprout after fire and have no canopy. So they get all the sunlight. Mm-hmm. So in some ways they they come back after fire. But how is the drought and the you know fire tendency, how is it affecting these uh, aspen forests in the West today? Generally speaking, as you've already alluded to, it's an advantage for aspen. And we've come out of a roughly a century that was very wet. And this is very frustrating to me because all conversations about climate, we talk about where we're going, but we don't do a really great job of where we've been. And this has been a very, very, very wet uh, century overall yeah. in the Intermountain West, as much as uh, the wettest in, in one or 2,000 years based on, on tree ring records. So in a sense, that was a real anomaly and anything that happens climate change aside, any drought or change that comes on is going to look sort of drastic. So uh, if we add more fire to the system, and we've had a century where aspen grows together with conifers, and it doesn't always do that, and I need to come back to that in a little while, where it grows with conifers is susceptible to burning. 
and Aspen does pretty well and it responds pretty well. Um, and so we would expect Aspen cover to increase with more fire in those areas where it grows with conifers. There are a lot of places across the, particularly across the Colorado Plateau, where there's vast areas where aspen grows in a more pure form, like the Pando clone, like on Cedar Mountain, like in several other locations all across the Colorado Plateau. And it's not fire dependent at all, or very little so. And so it has a completely different ecology you might think of in terms of reproduction. And it's more of a slow and steady regrowth of aspen without that big catastrophic event. So there's different things going on there, but on balance, if we would anticipate more fire, that we would expect to see an expansion and really a health and improvement in the resilience of aspen forests. So fire is not necessarily a bad thing for aspen forests. In fact, they can thrive after fire in the right conditions. The two main threats to aspen today, especially on the Colorado Plateau, are ungulates and the oyster shell scale. Number one in the West in threatening uh, aspen communities and health is herbivory from large ungulates. Those are animals that have hooves and some are domestic and some are wild. The problem is like at Pando, when you have those highly nutritious shoots coming up and the animals are eating every single one. And if that goes on for a few decades, you have a really skewed demography. You have this, what we call a gallery forest of these beautiful mature trees, but there's nothing coming up underneath. No, no babies, no teenagers, no young adults. And so if that was a human population, that would be a, a pretty risky situation to be in. And that's the condition of a lot of our aspen forests across the Colorado Plateau, particularly where they're in those areas that don't burn well, where there's not conifers. Where there are conifers, that's kind of our solution or our way out. But we still need to do a better job of managing those wild and domestic ungulates. Another big new threat is a small, tiny, invasive species called oyster shell scale. And it's decimating some forests in Arizona and it's moving north and is now found in southern Utah and so on. But it's a very tiny thing that looks like a, a little oyster shell. Right. And you you would get thousands of them on a tree and they'd cut off the circulation of the tree. And so we're trying to figure out what that all is. And it's all brand new, say, within the last generation, human generation. And that's also having an effect. And so we've got to we've got to untangle these things and, you know, say some of these droughts go on to past historic levels from years to decades to perhaps a half a century or more. And, and then we're really in highly climate influenced situation. How is any ecosystem going to respond, but particularly Aspen? Well, our best bet is to make them as resilient as possible. And if we push them to the edge of the cliff and then we say, well, they're dying because of climate change, which is the cliff, we shouldn't be surprised. And we're, we're, some of our actions, like our management of wild and domestic ungulates, like the proliferation of this invasive species, some of our development practices are pushing these systems to the edge and it's working in the opposite direction of resilient systems that we need to face some real challenges that are probably ahead of us. Okay, so you're saying that in order for Aspen to be resilient in the face of increasing drought, they need to be healthy. But these other factors, namely the ungulates, are weakening the Aspen and and making their chances of survival during drought even more tenuous. So 
Can you talk more about the ungulate problem and how how it's being addressed? Think of deer and elk and sheep and cattle, sometimes two or three of those on the same landscape. And think of this little gold mine of all those new shoots coming up. When they grow that fast, they have a lot of nutrition and they're highly desirable, particularly to elk and less so probably to deer and cattle and sheep. But late in the year when nothing else is green, it's the place to go where there's still some nutrition on the, out there. If you're a hungry animal and you, you're looking for that. So they're, they're going to what's green and where there's new shoots and where there's some nutrition. The numbers of these animals are beyond probably any historic levels because we've removed predators, but, but also for human reasons, for sociological reasons, economic reasons, we like to have a lot of those things that have rounded teeth and we don't like things with pointy teeth. However, what the general public is unaware of is there's impacts to having large numbers of these animals that eat a lot of things. And in this case, if they eat aspen sprouts, and that goes on for years or decades, that affects all the species that are dependent on aspen because aspen is known as a keystone or uh, some people prefer the term foundational species. And so as goes the trajectory of aspen, so goes all those dependent plants and animals that need those systems. And so we have this sort of a vicious cycle set up and that's really the number one threat. That's not the case on every landscape. However, the Colorado Plateau is probably one of the, the most threatened by some combination of those four different species. And, and it may be because that ecosystem never supported that many deer and elk in the past. And, and if you go further south, for example, around Flagstaff, They've made a very strong argument that elk is, and, and sort of brace yourself, it's a funny term, but an invasive species and, or an introduced species. There was a, a different subspecies of elk in that area that died off. We literally put these elk on trains from Yellowstone and took them to Prescott, Arizona and un unloaded them and, and seeded the forest with them about 100 years ago. But large numbers of these animals that don't have to move that much because they're not threatened by apex predators can do a lot of consumption of, of plants. And it's it's not just aspen, but I'm, we're keying in on aspen here. There's other nutrients they're looking for out there. So we have this unbalanced system really powered by human needs and desires and fears. You know, we don't want those things that, that might threaten us. And we do want the things that seem soft and gentle and pretty cool to see from the roadside. But the numbers are probably beyond any historic precedent. The Western Aspen Alliance that you run, it's a joint venture between Utah State University, federal agencies, state agencies, and scientists. What types of restoration and or conservation are you trying to do to, to, to help Aspen forests? We don't do advocacy per se, like a lot of conservation groups folks might be thinking of, but our main mission is education and outreach and then facilitating science, so building science teams to take on, on certain issues. And we do that in a wide variety of ways. you got to use uh, many different mechanisms, from yeah. small, brief, easy-to-read papers to technical papers to webcasts. We do a lot of professional workshops in the summer around all the Western states, and nice. we facilitate those with, with regional experts and different, you know, everything from wildlife to wildfire to climate change 
know, try to bring in those folks. So it's definitely not all me, but we try to help facilitate that. And then the recipients of that information, which are really participants, are going to hopefully be from a, a, a diverse uh, number of disciplines and agencies tribal institutions, as much diversity as we can get so we can enliven and enrich the discussion and get a lot of different input. What are some of the on-the-ground projects you have going now to try and combat, say, some of these problems like the ungulate and or the oyster shell? What are what are some projects that you're actively working on? I'd like to say we have that whole process sorted out and everything's going smoothly, but realistically, a number of graduate students, some from Utah State University, a very important uh, graduate student named uh, Connor Crouch, who is really the toehold on the whole oyster shell situation, and his advisor, Kristen Waring at Northern Arizona University. So understanding that, getting the basics down. And that really took they really took the lead on that, and I was involved in that PhD student. And and then what we're doing on the ground, something that's active right now, is monitoring all the Aspen communities in Bryce Canyon National Park. And so it's not super sexy and exciting, it's but it's trying to find out exactly what the situation is, and then we will develop a plan jointly, the Western Aspen Alliance and Bryce Canyon to figure out where to go from there. And they have you know, a mission of a lot of tourists coming through and some highly visible places and some much less visible backcountry places. And so we'll probably have a different tactic for those two different situations. When you go to Bryce Canyon, you're thinking red rocks and beautiful vistas. You don't think about Aspen communities, but a lot of the wildlife that people like to see are dependent on those, for example. And there's a fair amount of that in there. Um, and so we have one summer of field work and we have another one ahead of us to try to understand the situation there and then jointly develop a plan. Apart from their inherent beauty, of course, these trees, these aspens, why is it important to conserve and preserve and restore these forests? Yeah, I, I like the way you started that question out because, first of all, in 2014, we changed in Utah our state tree to the quaking aspen. But I think that we often underplay, and when we list when we list the assets of any species, we often say near the end, oh, something like recreation or aesthetics or photography. I don't want to underplay that. That is important. When we think about living in tandem with our planet, we need to appreciate things for what they are. Just the simple aesthetic value is something is very important. Yeah. So clearly, I'm, I'm, I've been emphasizing the biodiversity of these systems. What happens to aspen, either pro or con, there's a trajectory of a lot of other species that are going to follow that trend. So biodiversity at a global scale is out front. And we're recognizing that more and more in our ecosystems in the American West as well. We have economic um, advantages. We have biodiversity advantages. We have resource advantages. It's also used for livestock forage. What's the value, you might say, and then oftentimes we're talking about to humans, what is the value to humans? But I would place right up front there just the, the aesthetics, the intrinsic value of these things existing and people seem to be attracted to them. Yeah, for sure. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you talking to Science Moab and sharing the love of these beautiful trees. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Peggy. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.